for sure, without a doubt, the only guy who's ever won a Grand Tour with McDonald's and almost 42 years of age. Off from the escape, and Nibali's going for it. And where is Horner, and what can he do? Well, they're still listed as being together, but they're not quite just for now. And there's no space at all 22%. It's the toughest part of this climb. The motorcycle's doing the best, the crowd encroaching just behind. We can't see the riders at all. Oh. There is Alejandro Valverde on his lonesome right now, but it's about Nibali and it's about Horner. And we're going to have to race on and try and find them as the motorcycle tries its best to pick its way through the crowd here oh and at long last we get back to the men that we need to know about and Horner is locked absolutely with Vincenzo Nibali. Yes. Horner's gone off and decided just to leave everybody else to play including Vincenzo Nibali but running away right now is that man Horner and look at him go 12 seconds now between Horner and Nibali the transponders are working and keeping us in touch he's in the herd zone 21% well who doubted that this this man could stretch his legs today. He's done. You ride it out until it's over, love. Get you what you want, call me the plug. Living every day like I already want. Gone ahead, take the bag and run. We gon' ride it out until it's over, love. Get you what you want, call me the plug. Uh, Chris Horner, welcome to the Outer Line. Uh, perspectives on pro cycling. Uh, this is a fairly new podcast, and uh, so for being the uh, second on deck here, following up from Kevin right. Yeah, Livingston. thanks for having me. It's all good. So uh, 20 years of pro, uh, 20 plus years, you know, you probably- 20 uh, plus, yeah, I don't know where it officially started and stopped. It officially started, I just turned pro and bought my own pro license. So I don't even know if that counts. You know, it was 1994 and I just paid 150 bucks and turned pro with no team. Back in those days, you could do that. Like any, anybody listening to this podcast could just, you know, shell out 150 bucks and you're a pro rider. So that's what I did. That's great to see that at least you're probably on your bike still, right? So yeah, yeah, I still ride most days. I don't, I don't have time to ride five and six hours because I got five or six hours free, but then I don't have the recovery time afterwards. So um, I just pop on the bike, ride an hour or two, and then every once in a while you'll do a three or four hour ride here or there. But I haven't even seen that during this coronavirus stuff. I haven't even had time to do that because I'm just hanging out at home with my boys and the kids and all that stuff and we'll go ride motorcycles in the day and then I'll go ride an hour or two on the bike uh in the late afternoon when it's warmed up let's talk about bikes and your love of the bike not only the pedal kind but you grew up in southern California and it's no secret that's kind of the epicenter for uh for motor biking in the country and now you're out there with your five-year-old and your 18-year-old and you're uh, riding motorbikes yeah, yeah. So my 18-year-old and I, we do a lot. Of, he really loves the rock climbing. So we get out there on the the two-stroke bikes. Where I got a 300, a 150, and I got a YZ125 that's been turned into a trail bike and a, a four-stroke 250 XCF KTM. And so we're out there all the time pushing each other up these 20-foot rock cliffs. Uh, it's pretty fun. It's, at first, I didn't like it. And then after a while, you get into it and you start making this 250-pound bike go up a 20-foot wall. And you're, it gets kind of pretty cool then. So we do that. My little five-year-old's got one of those uh, Husky electron, all-electric battery-operated motocross bikes. It's like a 50cc size. Uh, and he's just tearing it up. So my five-year-old, he's, he's the next thing coming. <laughs> So he's going to go to motorside, not the pedal. Ah, uh, no, no, he loves. I don't. I 
I don't know which way he's going to go, but he loves anything on wheels. So he loves bicycles and he loves, and he loves motocross. So anything with two wheels, he absolutely loves. Uh, he's going to be a beast on one or both. But uh, yeah. tell, you know, talk a little bit about that transfer of what you learned and how you were able to take that over. You're always known as a good bike handler. Yeah. The two skills really, they compare really good. They, first off, it's just brings, does the most, the biggest thing motocross does is just bring you up to speed fast and bring you down speed fast. So the same as the bicycle where, where when you're climbing or descending or something like that, those speeds are kind of close to each other and, and how fast you know that you can go into a turn and take that too helps each other. The only problem with the motocross is, and I ran into this in 2002 with my career, I was riding a motocross bike and broke my foot. And it was right after Redlands and, you know, all, all the early California races I did well in. And then I had a small window to ride the motocross and broke my foot. And so at that point in time, I just realized that, okay, you got to, you know, you got to put the motocross bike away. I think it's a fabulous sport to connect with cycling. But the problem is, is that you're always going to break something on the motocross bike. And so it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to do the motocross bike and still get paid to ride as a professional cyclist because sooner or later you're going to be on the sideline. So eventually I put the motocross bike away and just, and just focused on the road bike. But I think they're, they're beautiful. The two work together really nice until you break something on your motocross bike. Was there ever a moment in your career you can remember where those, uh, those motocross skills played a role in uh, avoiding a crash? Or? Oh, is it Steve? It's every moment the last 10, 15 K of a bike race over in Europe when you're coming down to a sprint stage or something and you're just fighting for position left and right. And you have to see everything that you have to see everything three seconds in advance. At least you have to be looking for far enough up the head to start seeing, okay, we're coming into a corner. Everybody's going to narrow down, which is going to push everybody tight. Am I in a good position? So you have to see that corner coming so you can prepare for that corner in terms of your position in the Peloton. And then of course, is that corner going to be safe enough? Can you get out to the side or up the middle of the field to get yourself in a good position so that when we come out of the corner, single file line, you're still at the front. And, and so all those, all those things of seeing and knowing what's going to happen at least three seconds in advance is, is incredibly important. And so for my career it was really good because of my size. When you're doing the classic races over in Europe, I'm racing against guys that 170 pounds and I'm there at 137 and so you have to be really good at going through the middle because I don't have power to jump out to the side in the wind and then just go from 50 spot to first spot but I got really good skills to just go up through the middle and never have to touch the wind at all. Speaking of classics Liege you uh finished in a top 10 there quite a few times yeah uh, talk about that race and what made that special. Liege is really one of my favorite one day races because the the biggest thing about it is you have the best classic guys and the best GC stage racers all coming together. GC stage racer could win it. A classic guy usually wins it more than a GC stage race winner, but both have almost even chances. So that's what I like. It's the best quality one day race that you'll see in the world. Nothing beats it. Not the world championships, nothing. Liege is, is realistically the, the best quality field you're going to get. Nobody, ever goes into Liège and does an interview and just says, hey, I'm here for training. That's it. I don't really care. I'm just here for training. That all stops once the classics start. 
once you get to the bass country for stage race GC guys, uh, that's when they stop talking about like, you know, they'd be at Perry Nice. I'm just using this for training. You could be at Dolphin A, you can be at Tour Swiss. You're just using it for training for the Tour de France. But nobody talks about that three weeks of racing where you have uh, Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, Liège, Bastogne-Liège, the Basque Country, Amstel That time of the year in the Tour de France is the only two times of the year when every rider, every rider of the best riders in the world are on their top four. So, Chris, let's talk about your big Vuelta win. Uh, you know, your diet, uh, which is made up of McDonald's, played a big role that probably a lot of people don't uh, know about. And then there was some turmoil within the team as well. Uh, can you talk about that? So the biggest problem I was having is that we had our own chef, and he was cooking amazing meals. Like, that, like the, our chef with Radio Shack was amazing. He, he made great food. But it's so clean, Steve. There's no salt in it. There's no fat in it. There's no oils in it. Yeah. Now you got to eat three plates of that to match what a Big Mac will do for you. And yeah. so I was having, because I started Spain so thin, I was having problems bonking during the stage. And finally, my wife, my wife came to, she did every stage, uh, which was amazing because uh, early, you, you probably, you might want to even shoot this video. Early, early in the tour of Spain, when I'm fighting with the team for leadership, I'm riding my, I'm riding my home training bike at the race, and they don't have a spare race bike for me. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So I'm fighting with the team. So I win the jersey on stage three. Next morning, we go into the bus. And we're starting stage four, and they're going to race for Fabian Cancellar to win the stage. And I'm sitting in a bus, and I'm like, Yeah, exactly. And I know what was happening, right? Because they had signed Fabian. Trek was taking over the Radio Shack team for next year. Radio Shack was done. I'm on this team for six years. This is, as far as I'm concerned, I've been on this team for six years. This is the last year in, in, in its existence. And I don't have a contract for the following year, but they'd already signed Fabian to a multi-year deal. I don't, I'm in the, this is the first time in six years we're wearing the race leader's jersey in a grand tour. And it's crickets around the team. No sponsors at all. Trek's not there. We're uh, early, early in the first six years of that deal, we, had, we were sponsored with SRAM, and SRAM was always around with Alex Wasman. Now we're Shimano, but nobody from Shimano's around. Uh, we normally would have, and I only raced the biggest races in the world with, with this team during the six years, and we have 20 VIP guests from sponsors and everything around every event I'm ever at for, six, for almost a six-year period until the very last race I do with this team, the bulk of the one I happen to be winning. It's crickets. There's nobody. Wow. Wow. I'm on my home training bike. My spare bike on the top of the car is not even the same as my race bike. It's a completely different model. I don't mean it's not one I've never ridden before. I mean, it's a completely different model. Wow. And, and they can't get the correct model to have on the top of the car and I'm coming back from a five month knee injury. So having my wife at the race was massive because 
I was coming back pissed. And stage four, I lose the jersey. And you, you read on Cycling News, their articles about how I lost the jersey because I was in bad position. I couldn't follow on the climb. And that had nothing to do with it. They were completely wrong. Yeah, no support. We blew up the whole team trying to bring back a break that we didn't need uh, to catch. And I was left on the climb by myself. And I got boxed in. And I didn't want to push my way out because if you crash, you're going to lose the jersey for sure. And if you just get a gap, I'm just going to lose the jersey temporarily and have a chance to, to win it later. And after I won it in stage three, my wife comes up to the finish line. She hiked all the way up to the top of the finish line. And she sees me at the ceremony. And before we left for the Vuelta, I told my wife, I said, I can go top 10 for sure. Now after stage three, I'm, I'm, I, tell her before, I tell her before I, look, before I leave, I could go top three. I tell the team I could go top 10. After stage three, I tell her I can win. And I tell the team I can podium. And I bonked on this stage. And she goes, there's a McDonald's on the way right near the, right near the hotel. I saw it when I checked in this morning. Do you want it? And it was like, I think we're on stage six or something, give or take. I'll have to look at the map. Uh, but we're early into the Vuelta still. And, and she's like, there's a McDonald's on the way. Do you want me to get it and bring it to you? I was like, absolutely. Go get it and bring it. She brought it to me. And the next day, I was fabulous again. So we went McDonald's basically every night to the finish after that. Comebacks and injuries. You were talking about crashes before. And I know you had a major crash in the, uh, the tour at one point, you had the tunnel incident in 2014 preparing for the Giro. Uh, how did you just, you had some pretty severe crashes. You were able to come back and, uh, you know, sort of glue yourself together in the same year. You talk about that just as a pro rider for so many years and having to mentally overcome those type of things. Well, one of the upsides is about racing so long and about my age is that you, you always knew from the time you're 30 that it could be your last season. And so that really kept you focused all the time, especially when you had an injury. You knew with an injury, if you didn't make it back by the end of the season, that that might be the end of your career. It might be incredibly difficult to find another job or another team that would hire you, or even your same team might hire you, but your same team might not even exist next year. You know how quickly these teams come and go. So if you crashed on the wrong year and your team disappears, it's over. Uh, if you can't come back by the end of the year and get results. So for me, I was always really motivated, especially after 30, because I knew you had to prove yourself constantly over and over again. So whenever I crashed, it was get back home, stay professional, keep on the diet. You can't train, so you can't eat. And so you're miserable and unhappy the whole time when you're at home, but you still got to stay focused. And it's difficult to stay focused when you're not riding your bike, you're not racing your bike, and you're in a lot of pain, and you're not sleeping well either. So you have to fight through a lot of that stuff that the head really just wants to just sit on the couch and eat ice cream and donuts all day, which you just can't do. So, so but you got to be motivated. So 2014, we'll talk about the Vuelta here in a second, but you're coming off, uh, you know, a major win and uh, uh, admittingly very good shape. Um, and you got the Giro on the horizon and the accident yep. happened. Tell us about that. I'm training around Lake Como. It's about a hundred mile, 105 mile loop around the lake. And I'm on the far side and I'm two or three weeks away from the Giro. I can't remember what it was. And uh, I'm just flying. I'm going through these roundabouts and 
this time of the year they're starting to have construction everywhere. Normally you come into this roundabout, well, normally it's a straight road. They were actually, the construction was there because they were making a roundabout. So they had a new roundabout as I'm coming in. And as I come around the roundabout, the tunnel that I would normally go through is a pretty short tunnel and it takes you back out onto the coast through a little town. Uh, but the next, the second tunnel is probably 2K, 3K long. It's pretty, it's incredibly dark and it's pretty long and very narrow because it's in Italy. As I come around the roundabout, they had construction sign up that said that the bicycles are allowed in the tunnel. I assumed that they meant the big tunnel that normally we can't go through. Now we can, now we have permission to go through the big tunnel. Later, I was told, no, it meant that you can go through the tunnel that they were actually doing construction in. But the way they had the sign set up, it's set up like in between the two tunnels and I'm coming up at it 40, 50K an hour. I read it really fast and then just like, oh, I gotta go through the big tunnel. As soon as I entered the big tunnel, the lights were on, everything was fine. But as anybody that's listening to this podcast has ever known this train in Italy, the lights could be working and then not working. So I get further into the tunnel and then the lights just shut off. Uh, there's five cars coming at me in, in front and I look back and there's five cars coming from the back and you have a little white line about that much that's the bike lane seriously and the difference was is that sometimes you have the gutter but here in this tunnel the gutter is actually completely square so there's no way you could ride in the gutter you crash for sure so at that moment I knew I was in trouble uh, the second or third car clipped my hip with his mirror uh, after that, that knocked me out for a second. Uh, I assume I bounced off the wall. As when I start coming back, I'm literally sliding down the middle of the tunnel on, on the yellow line, more or less. And I actually, that's when I'm coming back. So what I feel is the mirror hit me on the hip. The next thing I know, I'm sliding on the concrete, looking at headlights coming straight at me. And immediately thinking that, okay, you got to get up off the floor as fast as you can because you're in a black tunnel, right? And I don't know if these cars coming at me can see me or not, but I'm still sliding. So I can't actually move yet. I'm still actually sliding apart from my bikes, some other place sliding and I'm sliding without my bike. And I'm just looking at headlights coming at me while I'm still sliding. And I'm thinking, okay, no matter how much this hurts, as soon as you stop, you have to get up. And at the same time, I'm also thinking in my head, well, that's the end of that career. I'm, I'm done now, you know? And so I come to a complete stop and I just hop up and run over to the opposite um, side of the lane that I was originally entered the tunnel in. And as I'm running across to, to get out of the way from the car, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'm still a bike racer. <laughs> that's, a, that's literally everything that's going through your head is survival. Your career's over. Oh, my career might not be over. That's what's going through your head. You know, came through, saw the light at the end of the tunnel, and you know, in, in all in all its beauty, get out into the sunshine and throw the bike to the curb. And I'm there about five minutes when all of a sudden cops, ambulance, everyone just comes flying around me, shuts off the whole road, and they wrap me up, put me in the ambulance, and rush me off to the emergency room. So I spend the next four days in intensive care, and the next five three, four days or something like that, maybe five total, uh, in a private room recovering and stuff with a, a nasty tube in the lung. So that was uh, not, not the experience you want. Don't go through the Italian tunnels. <laughs> when you look back, it's got to be kind of like the bottom 
of pro cycling when you go through an experience like that. And yeah, that's the bottom for sure. And, and that accident is basically what I believe what probably caused me to have to retire too. Uh, later on, I did a tour de France that same year, but then got a, a chest infection and then the chest infection, maybe with the lung infection, with the lung, punctured lung, because I punctured the lung one more time before I went to the tour. Uh, so maybe that between the two caused some irritation, gave me like a six month vicious cough, and then now got some acid reflux thing happening from that particular. So I never recovered from being sick at the Tour de France or being sick or, or the crash from the 2014 tunnel. One or the other, maybe a combination of both is what basically ended my career. I fought it for a couple of years thinking you could, some doctor would be able to solve the problem, but no one has been able to. Switching gears to uh, the word underdog. A lot of people uh, maybe look at your career and how do you view yourself? Because uh, you kind of were an underdog for a lot of years. You know, you're on a lot of different teams uh, in Europe. When you were coming up through the ranks, people were always wondering, uh, who's this Chris Horner kid with the long blonde ponytail, you know, from San Diego? Uh, obviously trying to hook up with the right team over in Europe. Uh, looking back, how do you view yourself? Were you that underdog? Oh, yeah, I was always an underdog for sure. I was always riding with the smallest teams, getting the biggest results. I think my career, in terms of the U.S. riders in history, third best U.S. writer in history. You know, there's, there's uh, Lance, LeMond, and myself. Somebody from Boulder, they want to argue about Andy Hampton or Davis Finney. I'll let you argue, but my resume is still better. Uh, I went, I dominated the U.S. scene. I went over in Europe. I won a grand, grand tour, the holy grail of cycling. I, I closed the loop for, for U.S. cycling in terms of grand tours because no one had ever won the Vuelta. So now we got a U.S. rider that's won the Giro, Tour de France, and the Vuelta. We've closed the loop. Uh, I was a big part in making that happen, of course, because I'm the one who did it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, my whole career, year, I was always fighting for different contracts with different teams. More often than not, I preferred to sign with smaller teams because the big teams, they either wouldn't sign me or they, they, they wouldn't give you a decent contract. And so if you went with a small team, you – you knew you could at least do the races you want to do. You'd be the leader on the team. Uh, many times, even with Radio Shack and stuff, you know, you're racing. I was racing for Alberto Contador, racing for Lance or Levi or Clody or Jaimar Zabeldia or something. And I'd go into the races saying, hey, I'm really good here. I can't win. I can go top five, but, you know, I could do good. And then they still switch it to a, ro uh, to a role of being a domestique or something like that for, for one of the other guys on the team. But that was pretty much my whole career. And even when I won the Volta, I went in to that, went in a stage at Tour of Utah, finishing second overall. We won the team classification. And then I go into the Volta, and we got four leaders at the Volta. We got, you know, an eight-man team with four leaders. And so it wasn't really until I won stage 10 that you, you had the whole team behind you. There was an epic moment, you know, through the rain on the climb at the Vuelta. Uh, when you look back at your career, what, was that one of the defining moments of your career? I think there's so many defining moments. It's, it's really crazy. Certainly that win in the Vuelta is the, the grand moment for sure. There's no arguing. It's, it's the holy grail of bike racing. When you're, when you're riding your bike, you're dreaming of winning the Tour de France. 
if you can't win a Tour de France, you win Spain or Italy, for sure. I mean, that's it. You want a Grand Tour. If you win a Grand Tour, you're a legendary rider. So you know where it cements your, your contract. Nobody can ever go like, oh, well, he's not any good. We want a Grand Tour. <laughs> okay. So, so that cements your, you in history. But there's moments through, throughout my career that have made major impacts in terms of just continuing to race. I remember doing Athens Twilight in uh, 1995. I believe it was 95, and and um, I'm in the break, and I got I got I got to make some money. Like I literally, I got to make some money, or my career's over. You know, I got to go home. I'm I got to pay some rent. I got to catch up on a couple bills. I got to eat. The car's got to have some gas. Uh, you know, I have to make some money this weekend. And luckily we had Shelby, we had Shelby on, on uh, Friday night, you had Athens Twilight on Saturday, and then you had First Union Grand Prix on Sunday. And so there was a, three days of big racing there where you can make some money. And in the 90s, they actually paid you the prize money after the race. So it was beautiful. You could leave the race and come home. I don't even know how kids race nowadays because they may never see that prize money ever. Uh, but in the old days, you, when the race finished, you walked home and you're counting the money in the van on the way home, splitting it up with your teammates and stuff. So anyways, I'm in Athens twilight and I'm getting up the road and I'm just driving it as hard as I can. Cause I know if I finish second, I'm going to continue bike racing. And if I don't finish second, I'm going to go home and probably stop bike racing and go and go start working nine to five. And so those, those moments happen though throughout, especially a 25 year period like myself, they happen all the time. So it's 1996, you're heading into Greenville, South Carolina, in America's premier race at that time, the Tour de Pont, you know, arguably as big as any stage race has been in the US, you know, based on 12 days and where it was located. And uh, you pull off the win and people were wondering, who's this Chris Horner kid? You proceed to get off your bike and uh, you create the first bike spike is the, what you called it at the press conference that day. Uh, relive that one moment because going back to defining moments, that's kind of where your breakthrough came, at least on the world stage, no? Yeah, on the world stage, I just say DuPont. We had uh, Olympic trials that same year too in, in Seattle when I won the first one, that was big. But DuPont was massive. It's just like you said, it was easily California, if not bigger. There's a huge European field coming in for it. Was in the 90s when bike racing was really coming up and stuff and still that magical feeling in the air of bike racing and all that. Uh, no internet service. So if you want to watch the bike race, you got to come out and watch it and you can't TiVo it and watch it later or something like that. So it was, uh, there was big hype around that race. I get in a break early. Just myself and Nate Reese, we're a two-man break, and we're going all the way to the line together. And I'm getting stuck, having to lead it out to the finish. And he jumps me, and he leaves. When he looks back, he leaves the he, – he fades a little bit to open up the, the, the gap so I can come up on the draft side on him. And I literally just throw the bike and beat him by a tire, a little more than a tire width, to the finish line. And – Steve, we fought so hard to get into this race. We're, we're one of the smallest teams in the world, not in the United States, but in the world. I'm making $280 a month for eight months out of the year, not, not 12, okay? That was my salary. 
and we've been winning all year in the U.S. at the domestic races. Now we're at the, we've fought to get into Tour de Pont. The only reason why we're there is because the Nutrafig family was big into politics in Fresno, California. So big so that they can get the governor and and all the politicians that they that they help out to call over to West Virginia, talk to their governors and their friends. And literally that's how we got in was a bit of was not not just on good results and riding hard, but politics. We got in on politics. And so we have probably five of us on the team that are getting paid. And one of the guys on the team that's getting paid the best, Thurlow Rogers, isn't even in the race because he's still amateur, not pro, because we're a pro-am team. <laughs> so, so we get there. When we win that stage, it was, it was really just a, a huge moment for us as, as a team. And then for myself, it was just an amazing moment. And I was so excited. I just threw the bike down and started celebrating. And so, yeah, the bike toss uh, got some good publicity that day. So I believe the stage winners got 10,000 plus. So you, you basically uh, quadrupled uh, you know, the uh, team winnings just by that one stage win. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. And, and of course, you know, bike racing, you don't see $10,000. You see about 1500 bucks <laughs> <laughs> by the time you split it up with your teammates and stuff. But 1500 bucks went a long ways in those days because rent was only $230, you know? So rent was $230 and, and I owned my Volkswagen Scirocco. So you didn't make a car payment. Uh, there wasn't much other thing other than uh, cable because there was no internet service and cable was only like 25, 30 bucks in those days. So it was pretty cheap. Nowadays, you got to spend $300 on cable. It's a bit different. You've always had this cult following because of that. You know, you're kind yeah, of every, so. every, every, every guy's or every, uh, uh, pro hopeful out there uh, has kind of admired you because of that. Have you ever dwelled on that, that, you know, that, that cult of personality that you've developed through, uh, uh, through that? Well, I, I mean, did I, did I love it when you achieved things doing it the hard way? Absolutely. So, so hundred percent. Would I have liked help with the national team? A hundred percent. You know, you look at what the Nationals team job is, is their job is to look after U.S. riders. And so to have a rider as myself come through the U.S. ranks and have such a little bit of help from the national team, it just shows what a bad job that they did. And, and it made it more difficult, but of course, very satisfying for myself when you win a Grand Tour, you win the Basque Country, you win a, a stage at the Tour of Switzerland. I've ridden with multiple big teams over in Europe and I did it all on my own. And, and so there is a lot of, there's a lot of blue collar work there that fans can appreciate. And they've seen that they've seen how much, how many times I've raced almost for free to still keep racing my bike. When I signed with Sonia Duvall in 2005, I was signing for 45, $50,000 that year. That's minimum wage. You know what I'm saying? So, so I would sometimes, you know, the internet was coming on board and around the late nineties, early two thousands, and you'd read these, these knucklehead stories about how, Oh, well, he's, he's only, he doesn't want to race unless he gets paid well or something. Guys, I've raced for the smallest teams in the world and I've raced for minimum wage 
more times than, than I should have ever had to do in my, in my career. And it's not talking once or twice or three times. We're talking four or five different times throughout my career where you're racing for almost nothing so that you can keep riding your bike. And so there's a lot of pride in that for sure. But there's also missed opportunities when, you know, if you'd ridden with Motorola back in the day and you'd gone up through the ranks, how much money would you have made? What's your life like after cycling? Uh, how much more popular could you have been um, if you'd stayed in Europe instead of coming back in 2000, 2001, uh, two, three, and four, if I just stayed in Europe that whole time, what would have happened and uh, how much money could you have made? How many more wins could you have had? Instead of one grand tour, could I have had, could I have five grand tour wins? Possibly. So remember, even when I won Spain, I was doing that not as a leader of Radio Shack. I was doing it as one of four leaders at Radio Shack. So being a self-admitting sort of controversial figure, I think uh, when you look at that, you've been outspoken, right? I mean, yeah, oh yeah, it's cost me some money. <laughs> so, so that candid, open. Uh, some people might say controversial uh, uh, point of view uh, has paid a little bit of dividends now in your second career here as an announcer. Yeah, so certainly. And that's what NBC, so NBC called me up. I was, I don't know, 38, 39 years old. And David Michaels calls me and, and he's the brother of Al Michaels, but David Michaels really runs the NBC show for the Tour de France. It's his baby. He started it. He, he brought it up. And so he calls me up and he says, Chris, we want to offer you this job at NBC. And I said, that sounds great, but I'm still a bike racer. I, I, I'm still racing my bike. He goes, Chris, you're, you're 39 years old. How much longer are you going to race your bike? This is NBC. And I said, I don't know, but racing my bike is the best thing in the world. You're offering me a number two job. I already got the number one job. <laughs> so I'm going to keep racing my bike. But I said, and, and very politely, and because I, I could always appreciate being offered a job. It's, it's a remarkable thing when somebody offers you something, especially when you didn't have to ask. You didn't have to turn your resume in. You didn't have to ask. And somebody has hope in you and faith, and somebody wants to pay you money because they believe in you. So, so I was honored to be called by NBC, but I was still a bike racer. And so they really wanted me to come, but I'm bike racing. So I said, no, no, I can't come. I'm still bike racing. And then I finished my career, win the Volta, finished my career shortly after that. And then uh, I sent an email to NBC, hey, you know, guys, I'm done. You know, I would love to come in and work commentating with you guys. And, and it's crickets for a couple of years. And then, and then David Michaels calls me up and he's like, Chris, we'd love to have you come on, on NBC and, and work the Tour de France with us. And, and my response was, David, I would love to come, but I can't come. I don't want to take Paul Sherwin's spot. Sherwin was a legend. I mean, the guy was a legend. How, how, can, you, how can you come in after a legend passes the way the way he did and be the next guy up? I didn't want that job. I, I wanted to work for NBC. I just did not want to come in under those conditions. And David Michaels, he tells me, he goes, Chris, don't worry. It's not going to be like that. I understand what you're saying. Uh, we're going to move Bob Roll uh, over to the desk with Phil. 
and then we're going to move you in to Christian and Christian's going to move into Bob's spot. And I thought, Oh, wow. Absolutely. I'd love to come. Yeah. That, 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 okay. That's better. I can handle that. I just don't want to be put up to a legend like Paul and have to take that spot. So, but at first David Michaels is actually hearing me kind of almost turning him down and then he hears why. And he's, and, and so he has to convince me to take the job again when, you know, I want to take this job. So it was a beautiful moment, but clearly my outspokenness, which cost me money, I think throughout my career and left me off different teams and rubbed some guys the wrong way is also just like you said, it's what has brought me into NBC. And this is the way the fans want to hear. The fans don't just want to hear like, oh, it was a great day of racing. It was sunny and beautiful and the strongest guy won. Uh, fans want to want you to enlighten them, tell them something that they haven't seen, that they haven't heard before, something that during this race even they missed and you can tell them something important that affected this race that they may or may not have even seen. So that's, that's really what they want. So NBC asked me to come in and be Chris Horner. And I said, well, Chris Horner's cost me a lot of bit of money. How about we not be Chris Horner? <laughs> and they said, no, 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 we want you to be Chris Horner. I was like, okay. <laughs> Having been a rider four times in the top 20, but now you're sitting behind the desk. Is there some things you, you didn't anticipate you were going to pick up that you picked up and brought to the desk? Yeah, commentating's definitely different than being a writer for sure. And it's different than like even this interview we're doing. Because the hardest thing when you're commentating is the fans at home see a six-hour event or a four-hour event on TV. But for us personally, we have 30, 45 minutes. Then there's three of us, you know, there's Paul, Christian, myself, and we're splitting up that time. And so you have maybe seven to 15 minutes worth of chatting, depending on how the race went. Uh, you know, Bob Roll, Phil Leggett, they have their own time. They get a lot more time than we do, but we don't have a lot of time. So you have to be precise. You have to find out exactly what you think you can add to this conversation and you and you have to keep it short we don't have and, and i'm not a short i really like to go on explain go in detail make sure everyone understands what i'm thinking and instead when you're up there you have to boom just say it it has to be really big it has to be really important it has to mean something to the fans at home agent performance you know when you won the vuelta at age 41 Seem like there are a lot of haters out there, Chris. God, how's this guy doing this at this age? How do you respond to that? There always is. There's no response. Steve, I listed my blood results. Every test they did, I put out there online. Everyone. Every test I had. There's nothing missed. It's all there. Nothing changed. When you go through the history of cycling, everybody's guilty to a certain degree of some kind of doping and fracture because you either, even if you didn't take something, you're on a team that somebody else took something or on a team that was massively performing and maybe you weren't. Okay. And, and so everybody's guilty because you had to know somebody on the team that was doing it. And so maybe you didn't take any product, but you knew somebody that took some product or something. I mean, we're talking about the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, the fastest period of cycling in the world. Now, you look at that same period of my career, 
And as the doping controls get better, my results get better. That's the only facts. That's the only facts I can tell your fans. Only facts right now I can tell your fans, my fans, and everybody watching this show. If you look at the doping control, as it gets better, my results got better. Okay? So I didn't come up with some magical way, way of, of avoiding the detection that everybody else got caught with. Okay? So those are the facts. Nothing else any other writer ever tells you can you believe it's true or false. You could just say that this is what he said, but you can't believe it's true or false. But if doping control got better and my results got better, while I'm writing for the smallest teams in the world at the same time, not making millions of dollars, you tell the story. off when I was first pro the the age was 30 to 34 that's when you retired all of a sudden they got pushed to like 36 then you saw some guys riding at 38 and they were way over the hill and then all of a sudden like when I'm racing at 40 it was untouchable no one was doing it not 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 at the front like that anyways and then to win a grand tour I was almost 42 when I won Spain I think if you have the love for the sport, the desire for the sport, you can stay healthy. I think you can race to 50. I don't think it's far-fetched. But here's the problem. You have to love it. I mean, because the problem is if you were already good to where you're winning, you probably made enough money where you don't have to do it anymore. You've given up a lot in life. You haven't spent as much time with your wife and your kids, and you haven't been at home, and you haven't gone out to parties that often throughout your life. Uh, my life was – I love the bike. That's what I – I remember racing Super Week in the 90s, early 90s, and we're out between, between uh, race days. Sometimes they'd have a day off, and we'd go out, and we'd train all day, and we'd come back, and we had um, – I think it was Axel Merckx's wife, uh, Jody. And so she comes in and she goes, what are you guys doing today? We're like, oh, we're going to go out training. She's like, you guys raced all week. Now you're going to go out training? You're not going to go do something fun? And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You misunderstand. You think this is a job for me. I go, I am having fun. Every day when I go out and ride my bike, training, racing, whatever, I'm at Disneyland. So when, you're, when you think you got to go to the mall or you got to go out to a party, I already did that. That's what I did today when I was riding my bike. That is my fun time. And so for me, it was never much of a sacrifice. Aside from being apart from my kids, that was a bit harder. Uh, my wife, she traveled a lot with me, but, but the kids, um, I, I had kids with an ex-girlfriend, so I would have time, a lot of time away from my kids. That was the hardest part, was being away from my kids. But missing the parties, uh, not hanging out with my friends and all that stuff as much as, as much as guys would want, not going out to the pub and getting drunk or something. For me, that was easy. I was riding my bike that day, so that's all I wanted to do anyways. Um, and so if I could go catch dinner and catch a movie, I was fine with that. I was, that. I was good. So that's why I could do it 
so late into my careers because I didn't want to do other stuff. I understood that things weren't going to be greener on the other side that I knew as soon as I finished racing, no matter what age, like I, I finished racing at professional level when I got sick because I couldn't do it anymore. And I always knew the only way I was leaving the pro pro ranks was in an ambulance and either I had an injury or a health issue. That was it. Like I, I never saw that there was going to be a moment where I was like, that's it. I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to start partying. Let's, let's get this over with. Like I was happy to be a bike racer and I would have done it. I'd like I said, at the start of our, I'd start this video. I would be doing it right now if I was healthy. That is a great way to wrap it up. <laughs> Noting that you're not going to end your career unless you're going home in an ambulance or, uh, or some, some parting shot like that. So uh, Chris, been great catching up with you. Appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thanks. I'm sure we'll see each other again. <laughs> All right. Stay well, my brother. Thanks for having me. Ciao, guys. Enjoy. Right. We gon' ride it out until it's over, love. Get you what you want and call me the plug. Living every day like I already want. Gone ahead, take the bag and run. Gonna ride it out until it's over, love. Get you what you want, call me the plug.